Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. So long, farewell to what you thought would go so well. You can hold on like hell, but it doesn't matter how you feel. This is the new real. This is the new real. This is Shattered Souls. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Sergeant Kenny Brooke. Rest in peace, my friend, and thank you. This is the new real. They're not just people in my case. These are my family members now. There are different types of family members, but they are my family. In this episode, I had the privilege of talking with one of my mentors, Detective Eileen Simpson. Eileen and I worked many cases together, and we'll discuss three of them. Two of them have been the subject of other full episodes, and you'll recognize the names of those victims. Eileen had been in homicide for several years when I went to the detective division, and from the word go, she shared her incredible knowledge of homicide and narcotics investigations with me. And I looked to her for a direction to move when I would get frustrated that the evidence wasn't panning out. And I relied on her to reassure me that we would find the answers we were searching for. We have a deep mutual respect. Her philosophies about homicide investigations and how she has handled her own emotional fallout from the hundreds of cases she investigated is unique. She's highly empathetic and extraordinarily productive. She is a real-life hero in my eyes, and after hearing her, I think you'll think so too. My name is Eileen Simpson, and I spent 26 years with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, 16 years in homicide. I retired in April, and now I am back to work for the Sheriff's Office in a crime gun intelligence center. You, You were one of my first mentors, and thank you for everything you taught me. I looked up to you the entire time I was with the crime scene unit. You were one of my go-tos if I needed advice, if I needed to know where to go, where to focus. So I really appreciate that. You were definitely uh, one of my favorites as well and very easy to work with. And it was my pleasure to impart anything I knew to you. How did you become a homicide detective? Was it like a calling for you? Was it something that you had pre-planned or did you fall into it? Well, I kind of fell into it. I had been in narcotics for about seven years, and I was a task force officer, duly sworn with DEA. And they asked me where I wanted to go, and I didn't thought I was going to live my whole life in narcotics. I did so much undercover work, and I have such a fun time doing it, I didn't think about it. So they told me, well, go home and think about it. And the type of drive that I have and the type of need to do work that's goodwill to everybody... I thought that there was no other place than homicide that I'd want to be. So I asked them to go to homicide, and that's where I went. Now, on the Alexandria Williams case, when we were talking a few weeks ago, you brought that case up because it had a major impact on you. Not so much on me, because I didn't deal with the people aspect. You did. For some background, Alexandria Williams was a 13-month-old baby. She was beaten to death. And we found out later that she had been sexually assaulted by a 16-year-old friend of the family. You were the lead homicide investigator, and you had to deal with some ungodly details, not only at the scene with me, but in the aftermath. Can you talk about that? Getting that case, anytime you have a, a baby case, what we call a baby case, 
you have to take a deep breath and realize that it's a sore subject. For me, in all the years of homicide, death in and of itself, in the beginning, seeing a deceased body, it took me a minute to actually be able to look at the body and not think, oh my gosh, that poor kid or that, that mama that we have to tell her son is dead, versus, okay, where's the gunshot wound? Where's the trauma? You know, you're looking at it from a completely different level. That took a minute, not too long, but there's not any case with a baby that I've ever worked that I could associate myself and take myself away from reality because that was a baby, that's a little child. From the get-go, getting that case and understanding that there were a lot of kids in the house and it didn't seem plausible that anybody outside the house did this to this child, then knowing that it had to be a child that did this to a child. That, you got to take a deep breath, swallow, and put your boots on. Pretty early on, there was, you know, an indication that this baby, you know, wasn't going to live and, and then didn't live. One of the hardest moments of all is you have to consider everybody a suspect. And the father, one of the moments I'll never forget is having to ask him questions about his child that I didn't think he did anything to, but I had to put on a face that was neutral and ask him things where he's bawling and snot's coming out of his nose. And no one wants to get asked that. It's almost offensive, but that's my job. So getting past that was, you know, a kickstart for me. And then going to the hospital and bringing the prosecutor on was critical. In these baby cases, you have a lot of timelines. You have a lot of things to accomplish. Who had care and control of this baby? And the good part was I had two adults they were able to tell me that that child was alive and awake and responsive when they left. And within a short period of time, they were at the grocery store, then this child is down and unresponsive. So I kind of had a better timeline than most cases. So being at the hospital and having to tell the mom and the dad that this child is not going to survive and we have to consider this a murder, watching those two people melt down before your eyes and not being able to have any emotions because you got to bottle it up, it is horrible. It's horrible. So you let the emotion go in the car with the prosecutor, and then you think you promise to never tell anybody that you cried about it. That was a real tough case. Obviously, we came to the conclusion that the child that did it was Javaris Lane. There was a lot to accomplish in that. Getting him to talk, you got to know he's a juvenile, and we have to let his parents involved. When parents ask to be in the room, you kind of shudder. Like, is that, are they going to help us? Or are they going to hurt us? But you have to let him in. You know, he's a kid. He's a child. And in this case, the dad actually was pretty helpful. Going through that whole case in and of itself, you know, having the crime scene information relayed into us, having the knowledge that the doctors were able to give us helped us understand. And then interviewing him, you could just see the evil in this child. And you knew it was your job to get that evil out. It is no fun. I'm just going to be honest with you. It is no fun. Those things, there are moments in my life, I've worked a couple hundred murders, and there are moments in some of them that I remember because I read a report, but there are moments in these kid cases that you will never forget, ever, ever, ever. Fortunately for this case, we had a good outcome, and he confessed to most of it. There were some things that happened that, you know, you just shake your head at and try to pick up the pieces. When you are preparing to go into the room with him and with the parents, how do you prepare yourself for something like that? Is there anything you can do to prep? Like, do you take a deep breath? Do you just steal yourself? What do you do? I think you'll remember this. We had talked to him a little while, then the dad got there and he wanted to be in the room. Back then, we had a little monitor room and you and I talked. And you gave me a little pep talk and said, look, you can do this. Just go in there and get him to talk. Continue this. You got this. Only one person in this office that I think can do this. And yeah, I take the words of others and you play off of the people that are in your squad and you just have to learn. This is a learned thing. No one, there's not a book to tell you how to figure this out. This is just continuously going to these cases and getting better at separating yourself for the moment. You had excused yourself for a couple of minutes and we were all sitting there watching Javaris Lane with the baby doll that you brought in there and you know he demonstrated what he did and then he was pacing around I won't say what he said but he he was doing this interior monologue and we all just sat there in stunned silence looked at each other and went what the hell is he talking about and then you went back in and closed and I have to say Eileen it was the most brilliant close I've ever seen and I knew that there were certain people in homicide 
that were really good. And it was the female detectives, believe it or not, who could get people to talk. And I don't know what it is, but you had that that thing that could get to the root of the issue. And it was horrendous to watch, but it was also brilliant. Thank you. Javaris Lane admitted to killing Alexandria Williams, and he was sentenced to life in prison as a juvenile. He has since appealed that decision, and we're waiting on that. But let's talk about another case. Roy Andrews. Roy was murdered by his stepson, Robert Peterson, and he used brass knuckles, and then he shot Roy twice in the head. Now, you got the cooperation of Jimmy Jackson, who was a known drug dealer, in order to get an unexpected confession from Robert inside of a truck that you had wired and during a sting operation in the days that followed Roy's murder. We not only worked that case, we also did a a television show about it recently. And, yeah, I actually learned a lot about the case by watching that episode that I didn't know. So I have a couple of questions. First of all, you knew Roy. I didn't. He, he retired before I became a cop, but you knew him. Can you talk about his personality for a second? Do you know enough about him for that? Yeah, I, I was on very young officer. I had a uh, training. I was in the zone that he was in and I, I met him and he was just that older school guy, but nice. You know, the old, a lot of the old school guys were like really gruff and I guess they had been on long enough. They were like, they were ready to go. And so when we came on, we took their place. And there was a lot of times where there was a call I was taking for their group. And he would help me. He wouldn't just hand me a piece of paper or tell me to go talk to somebody and then get in the car and leave. Roy was a very kind man. And he taught you things. And he told you things to help you and to make you better. Then I ended up moving to another zone. So I would come across him every now and again. And back in the day, the old school people told you, if you saw a police officer on the side of the road, you always stopped. So there were a couple of times that I stopped and joined in with what he had going on. And the level of respect I had for him was enormous. I wish I could have known him. He sounds like a mentor. What I talked about in episodes three and four on my podcast, I, I gave information to the audience based on what you had said on the TV show. So I'm really glad to hear that straight from you. He was a good guy, and getting to know his son, Jack, I mean, what a, a the apple fell off that tree exactly the same way. Jack is a, a wonderful human being. Just a great guy. That's good to hear. I wish I could have known him, too. Now, you were the detective that brought Jimmy Jackson to the homicide office to assist with the investigation of Roy Andrew's murder. You wired yes, Jimmy and- uh, for the sting for the truck. What were you thinking in terms of getting a confession by Robert Peterson? And what were you expecting versus what you guys got? I'll start with Jimmy Jackson was someone that while I was in narcotics, I had bought drugs from years back. So when I saw the name and then I saw the location of when we did some homework on where he was from, I knew it was the same Jimmy Jackson, common name, but I knew it was going to be the same Jimmy Jackson. So when we sat on the house, I knew he had a bad license. When he drove away, they completely stopped him. And it looked like a caravan, a dog on cars. So I got out of the car and I was kind of standing back. And I could see him looking in his rearview mirror at me and he recognized me. So I started walking up to the car and the first words out of his mouth are, I knew this definitely wasn't about me running a stop sign. He said, what do you want to know? And I said, well, we need to go downtown and talk. And he said, is this about Robbie? And I said, we need to go downtown and talk. So I knew right there he was going to be cooperative. Bringing him downtown and getting him to tell the story, man, he was already ready to tell it. And even though a person might do criminal activity, there are things that they draw a line in the sand about. Hurting kids and murdering people, no one wants any part of that. Zero part of that. They're not going to go down with a ship uh, over a murder. So I could tell that Jimmy was going to talk to us. Because I had a background in narcotics, that was the the role that I played was get the reporting stuff, get the car ready, and then be the eyes on the ground. He changed, uh, Robbie changed locations on us three times. That's a common practice. If you think the police are involved in something and trying to figure it out, you change the location, and then you watch and see how many cars move with that car. He didn't realize we were in the car in the parking lot watching Jimmy. And every time he changed locations, we held still 
and didn't move. I already knew that game. So in the third location, I guess he got comfortable and he decided to have the conversation. You never know how, how well it's going to turn out. We were all sitting waiting on you know the word to take it down or to arrest him or not arrest him because there's nothing said. He hopped in the car and started talking. Part of the conversation when he has with Jimmy where he talks about shooting Roy and then hitting him in his, his head and making that noise, it sounds like when you stump a melon, that noise, I will never be able to get that out of my head. And then knowing my immediate mind went to seeing Roy laying there on the ground on the side of the road in his work clothes with blood streaming down the gutter. All I could think is, what is wrong with this guy to take this man's life that's done nothing to him? This was a good human being, and you just treated him like trash, and you're just so nonchalant about it that you're just telling this random drug dealer how you just killed somebody. Believe me when I say I've heard a lot of conversations, confessions, but that one is at the top of the list in my mind, and I cannot shake that noise out of my head. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Yeah, I actually got the recording from the state attorney's office and I edited it down to uh, about 15 minutes. But I remember coming in the next morning and Bruce Baker had called me to come to the office and he didn't tell me why and he sat me at his desk and I listened to it. I was sick to my stomach. And knowing that you and the others were there listening live at that moment, what was going through your head when you're hearing this and you're hearing the full confession from his mouth to Jimmy Jackson that night? Detective Stephanie Strong and I were in a car together. And as you're hearing it, You don't know if he's going to get in and feel comfortable to talk or not, so that's your first hurdle. So we felt like we got over the first hurdle. Okay, good, he's talking. He continues to talk, and it continues to get more obvious that he's going to admit that he did it. A lot of people talk about it and blame it on someone else, and you just never know how it's going to go. So we got over the first hurdle. He's willing to talk. Then he starts talking about the thing itself, actually committing the murder. The statement that he made, we both looked at each other and it, and it was this moment of you have got to be kidding me this guy just demonstrated the way that he killed his stepfather and then it's like oh hold on we have to pay attention because there's a command staff with a state attorney deciding on when we have enough to do a takedown and we were two businesses over knowing how many people were there patrol officers in uniform with rifles Unless he ran and I needed to chase him because he got was getting away, they had that under control, and I better stay away from grabbing him up. There were plenty of people there when we pulled into the parking lot. This is under control. I don't need to bring my hot head into it. I elected to remove myself from that type of thing, knowing how I felt about it, and do something else. So you got him downtown to the box, and you had to interview Robert Peterson after all this was said and done. How did you keep your cool 
once you had the confession, once you had everything that the state needed to bring it to court, how did you keep your head in the box with that man? Hey, believe it or not, that's the easy part. This whole thing becomes a game to me and not a funny game. It's a serious game. It's the most serious game you've ever played in your life. This is a challenge. You have challenged me to prove to six or 12 people that you committed a murder. I'm going to win. There's no other option. With an adult case, I can walk in and close off everything. I can pretend like I'm the most sympathetic person in the world. Like I can, I don't blame you, buddy. I probably would have felt the same way. And you know, you have every right to feel that way, but I don't believe that. I'm in my arena now. I've built a case, but my arena is that eight by eight room called the box. We call it a box for a reason because the walls close in and my job is to pinch the walls and to close the walls and to keep all other sources of lies out of that room. It's my job to do that. That is my favorite part outside of testifying in court. That is my favorite part. And if I don't come out of there with the truth, I didn't say a confession, with the truth, then I haven't done my job. I've lost my game. Robert Peterson was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was initially sentenced to death, but a new law in Florida states that the original jury had to come to a unanimous decision about that death penalty in order for the sentence to be carried out, and that came into play. Peterson's sentence was commuted to life without the possibility of parole because his jury was split seven to five. Another case that you and I worked together that was heartbreaking as hell, and that's Musa Mehta. Musa Mehta was shot by Michael Jacob after Musa sequestered himself in what he thought was a bulletproof cashier's booth. And Jacob circled back around. He took aim and fired a shot through that door that hit Musa right in his chest. Jacob had robbed the store, and he was subsequently locked inside when Musa pressed a button underneath the counter that magnetized the front door shut. And in a panic, Jacob cut himself when he pulled the burglar bars out of the floor and ceiling, and he also left his palm print on the money bag he left behind. And there are parts of that case that have stuck with me. And the one thing that I will never, ever, ever, in all of my days ever forget, were the parents showing up at the scene. When the mother ran over to me and, like, grabbed my face and my neck and just collapsed at my feet, and then you came over yeah. and you, you tapped the father on the shoulder and you brought them over to your car. We yeah, were... Um, the hardest part of the job. Yeah, that was... You know, for not dealing with people, for me, that was a career-defining moment. When I actually yeah, yeah. realized it was the humanizing moment when I went, oh, oh my God, this is what you guys deal with all the time. You evolve into the type of person that you realize it is okay to cry. It is okay to hug them. It is okay to lay on the floor with them. I'm not saying that everybody's comfortable in their skin. Some people find it better to sit on the couch and just stay stoic. For me, that didn't work. You teach new homicide detectives a lot of stuff. There is no way to teach them the empathy that you need to have when you're sitting in someone's living room or you're knocking on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning. You've got a badge around your neck, gun on your belt, and you need to come in and talk to them. You know those people know something's wrong. And a lot of times they think, well, they have a child that's troubled, or they think, oh, they've, they've gotten in trouble, or they're, they're shot, but they're okay. But then when you say the word dead, it's something else that happens. I have just learned that these are human beings. Number one, you've got to console them and, 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 and reassure them that you're there to do everything you can do to bring them answers and closure, that you're in it with them. To be real honest, it is such a shocking moment for most people. There's no really reason to tell them a whole lot, even though they want to hear a whole lot. They don't know what to do. They've never buried a child. I don't care what you tell them. The next morning, you're going to have to tell them again because they were in so much shock, they couldn't hear anything you said. And once you understand the time and the training that, it, that you get in doing these suicides and toxicology deaths and drownings and then murders, you get so many, I hate to say it, practice opportunities, but you get better at it and you learn what works. You also learn that they're not hearing anything you're saying, it, it, rightfully so. My motto to people on training was, 
who do you love the most in your life? Oh, your grandma? Okay, I want every time that you deal with these people, I want you to pretend like you're talking to your grandma. You are talking to your grandma, not you officer so-and-so talking to this victim's mom. I always took the approach that I want to treat people how I would want my grandmother to be treated. I hope they listened. I really do. Me too. I can remember at Musa's murder, you and I and the other crime scene detective were in the video bay in the cashier's booth. And you had rewound the videotape to review. And it was full color and audio. And we watched the entire thing unfold. And then the other crime yeah. scene detective that I was with excused herself. And she said, I got to get out of here for a minute. And she pushed past us and went outside. I wanted to. But you and I kind of s- stood there and we, we digested what we had just saw. And his body was like four feet away. And it was just a surreal moment. What? Yeah, it was. Can you remember what you were thinking? Well, what I thought in my mind was, oh my God, we just saw this young kid take the last breath he's ever going to take. And we just watched a moment of terror that you could tell he was trying to push the button, get the door locked. And then he's thinking in his mind, uh, you know, he might be safe now. Who would have thought that that guy could have got in that door and then shoot through that door and still put one round right in his chest. I mean, who would have thought that that would have happened? Trying to push the button, and then you just watch what happened to him, that terrorizing moment, that terrorizing minute. That's never happened to him. He's a 19-year-old kid. And I thought, holy cow, I hope I hope I can I do right by his family in this. That's what you think. He's like, all right, well, that was horrible. And, you, and then you think to yourself, I can never let them see this. You go to trial, they're going to see this. They're going to hear him take his last breath and thump on the ground one one last time. You just, it's terrorizing for them, and you just want to protect them from that. I looked around the store, and I, I remember looking at you and saying, all of that blood out there belongs to that piece of shit. And you turned to me and said, well, let's get him. And I thought, you're yep. damn right. And you split. You You took the parents downtown and left me to my my stuff. And then we took all the DNA, the blood samples, no fingerprints on the burglar bars, which was really frustrating for me. And then we had the money bag with the partial palm print on it. But you ran the DNA through CODIS. There was no palm print database. And that case went cold for two years. I know what you did, but describe how you kept running the DNA samples and what happened when you finally got that pop. So let me just start by saying that I don't an automatic hit. A long time ago, when I first came to the homicide unit, my first year, I was frustrated because I had a case that I couldn't get it to move anywhere. One of the really veteran detectives in there took me aside and he said, listen, you do realize that all these cases eventually solve themselves. And I thought, what an arrogant thing to say. But I didn't say anything and I just went about my way. Then later on, he was working a case with me. Something came in, it was three years old, and he showed me that that's what he meant. He didn't mean that you don't have to work, this will figure itself out. He meant even though they sit for a minute, something always happens to bring it back up. So I have this learned knowledge. So when I saw that crime scene, I can promise you, there was no doubt in my mind we'd catch a suspect. Seeing the evidence that we had, that bloody money. Once we watched the video and watched how he had to punch that door out and he cut himself, I knew his sample was gonna come in someday. As soon as I saw that, I took that deep breath and said, okay, we're going to get this one. This one's easy. How long it was going to take, I couldn't say. So what happens is you obviously run it initially. There's nobody in the system. That means whoever did it hasn't had a sample put in the system based on another felony yet. It continuously runs, and that's what you're waiting on. You're waiting on one day you get a phone call at your desk from FBLE to say, hey, good news. We just got a hit on your murder from Musa Maida, the snappy Fusto on Trolley Lane. You know it's going to come. As soon as that caller ID comes up, FBLE, I'll snatch that phone up and, and be ready for the answer. And that was what happened in this case. It was Michael Jacob. And the interesting thing is he had a twin, and so we had that whole thing to deal with. But fortunately, we had put the twin down somewhere where he couldn't have done it. Oh, I didn't know that. I had no idea he had a twin. And I guess people need to understand with twins that DNA is going to be the same. So that, yeah. Yeah, that could have been a major hiccup in the case. I did not know that, but we had the partial palm print and then we had our latent print examiner saying there was enough points to make an identification of 
Michael Jacob, that would not have come back to his twin. They have totally different prints as far as Correct. that's concerned. Michael Jacob was found guilty of first degree murder and the trial judge sentenced him to the death penalty. The appeal was heard by the Florida Supreme Court who then reversed that sentence and they changed it to life without the possibility of parole. You worked another case after I left that was not only heartbreaking for you, but for the whole department and really the entire city of Jacksonville, and that was the Lonzi Barton case. For some background, Lonzi Barton was 21 months old and was missing for 173 days. William Reuben Ebron, the suspect, called 911 to report a carjacking with baby Lonzi inside of that vehicle. This is the 911 call. All of that turned out to be a blatant lie. And you guys chased false lead after false lead because that suspect told so many lies to police, you guys had no idea what to believe anymore. And six months after his disappearance, a wooded area had been narrowed down in a pretty remote area off of a highway. And you and a team of searchers ultimately found little Lonzi's body. Lonzi Barton's case took years off of my life. Another moment that, you know, you'll never forget. You know, we had searched ponds and, and woods for six months looking for this child. And when the suspected killer took us out to show us where this body would be, it was very dark. It was very wooded. It was six months overgrown from what he remembered. And we kind of had an idea where it, we thought it would be. We decided to wait till the daylight came and then get a search party ready. Everybody left for a few hours. I couldn't do it. I, I just, there was an uneasy feeling of, well, this guy was telling the truth. Is this kid really here? Is he not really here? Everybody was on the fence, except me. I was literally handcuffed to him in the woods. And I sat with him in the backseat of a police car going out there. And I stayed with him the entire time and then taking him back. I really felt like that kid was out there. I felt like Lonzi was in those woods where he was showing us. I couldn't leave. I drove my car back to the scene and I stayed overnight. We had patrol sitting on it, but I felt like I didn't want to leave that little boy. In the he had been in the woods six months by himself. I couldn't leave him there by himself one more night. So I sat in my car. Daylight came. They sent out people to do the search. When the search party got there, I showed them a couple areas of where I thought that they, you know, be careful of. I thought, well, they're going to take a few hours. Let me get some sleep now. Someone's in the woods with him now. I'm okay. I'll sleep. It wasn't too long when they came and knocked on my window. And I rolled the window down and he goes, hey, I, I think we found him. And I'm like, what? Dumbfounded. Like, what? So he says, yeah, come over here and take a look. So I made everybody get out. And I walked up with him. And I could see a bone coming through the center of the tire that's missing. I saw a bone coming through there. And then off to the side, a little patch of blonde hair. I literally broke down. There was a canine guy from JFRD, Lieutenant John Long. We were joined at the hip for a long year, a lot of years. And every time I needed to search something, I would call him and he would bring his dog out 
and John was in the woods with me. And he looked at me, and we just hugged and cried. He patted me on the back, and he said, you said you'd do it. You did it. You found it. I'm sorry you went through that, but I'm glad you found him and brought him home. Lonzi Barton's mother, Lana, was sentenced to 12 years, and her boyfriend, William Reuben Ebron Jr., took a plea deal of 20 years without the possibility of parole in exchange for leading you to little Lonzi's body. Those are those moments where you got to come home and, and shake it off. You have to shake that off because there's more to do. And so you call up your sister and you say, hey, where are my nieces and nephews? And you tell them you love them and, hey, what you do in school today? And then sometimes you just leave in the middle of the day and you go take cupcakes to school and see all of their little faces that appreciate you and love you. And they're just the, the love of my life. And last year, I finally talked my oldest nephew, Brandon, into playing baseball. My, my love is baseball. And I finally talked him to not be shy anymore and to take on baseball. And we didn't know how it was going to go. A couple nights ago, a couple nights, a couple nights ago, he sent me a picture from his first practice this year. And he had my Clemson Tiger hat on from college. So you invest in your kids and uh, the people in your family. And you just know that everything you're doing is for a reason. And those people need you. And the way that you kind of circumvent the whole thing with, you know, how do you survive all these years of it is that you have little guys like that that have been in your life since they were born. And they'll come up to my house and we'll take them kayaking. And, you know, you just you just try to be a better person to them so they grow up and don't be like other people that are getting in trouble. And that's pretty much, you know, I feel like it's my calling. It's where I'm supposed to be. Hearing you get emotional like that is unusual. You you and I were pretty stoic at the scene as much as we could be. And I knew that you had that deep empathy as soon as I met you. And that's why you were my go-to. And I could always come to you and know that I wasn't going to get some BS answer or some runaround. I would always get the truth. Well, and I had that hardness to me as well that I expected this was someone's life and I demanded excellence. I did not put up with too much silliness. Again, you know, you just were one of those that I knew if I was getting called out in the middle of the night and the blue squad was working and you guys were coming on, I took a deep breath because I knew that if things would get done right and I wouldn't have to show my tail. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. When I worked with your team, it was the same feeling. I went, oh, God, thank God. Thank you, God. That's who's working this. Because I knew there would be absolutely no BS. There would be absolutely no question that... We were going to find out who did it. And that's a great feeling when you go to a homicide and you know that you're going to be in a shitstorm, but you know that the people that you're working with are on point and we're there, present, and we're going to deal with it. Yeah, I kind of relate it to the warrior mentality. And I like to circle myself with warriors so that I knew this was going to be a battle, whether it be with the community, whether it be with the state attorney's office, whether it be with lack of evidence. You know, you're going into a battle in every one of these. And I like to surround myself with a team full of battle warriors. And that was essential. I mean, it was a perfect storm if you had yourself, myself, a Janine Kirch. Those three elements, you could not fail if everyone's doing their job. And that was the biggest thing is the teamwork aspect of it. I couldn't be more happy when I knew I'd have you at a scene and you would relay information to me that I'm in a critical interview, as in the Alexandria Williams case. Some of the stuff that was able to be relayed to me was critical. And knowing it, sitting there in that room without having somebody knock on the door or tell you later, too late later, that element of surprise is gone. So that teamwork was essential. That was my favorite part. When you guys had somebody in the box, whether it was Javaris Lane for the Alexandria Williams case or anybody else, and I could real-time relay information about the scene and ask you guys, what is he or she saying? And they'd either say, yeah, that lines up, or no, that's complete BS, ask him this. That was my favorite moment because it played out in court the same way. And we could either refute or corroborate what these people were saying based upon the evidence. And that, I'm telling you, that was my favorite moment. Yeah, mine too. That communication was essential, and you didn't always have it, but when you did, you knew good things come when you do good things, and you know, I think God puts you in places where, on those baby cases, 
that you get somebody like yourself that cared enough to give it that extra effort and to coordinate and, and to communicate. So that was essential in that case. You are such a seasoned detective on so many levels. I'm just wondering if you have any advice for other detectives that may be going through a tough time dealing with these cases, a tough time dealing with the fallout that comes with it. What would you tell them? First and foremost, I would tell them to find someone to talk to about it. Someone that's either been through it, someone that has had to live it, or someone in their family that is close to it. Fortunately for me, you know, I have a big law enforcement family. There are times that, you know, I need to talk about a case. I try not to bring my cases home. Sometimes just having someone to talk to is good, but then find a purpose. You've got to have a purpose outside of solving a, a murder or a, or a robbery or a sex crime case. You've got to have a purpose. When you've had a rough day, you know you can come home and play race cars with your son or have a tea party with your daughter or take them to the park. Or if they're older, get them involved in things, but have an outlet. When you ask yourself, how many years do you want to do this? Or, you know, you have these cases and every single one of them takes a little something out of you. Every case is different, but yet the same. It's still murder, someone still lost a loved one. And I questioned myself in my first couple years for a lot of things. And what I learned is every time I worked a murder, no matter what kind of person the, the victim was, he normally had some sort of family member. They may not live the way you live. They may not practice the, the religion you do. They may not teach their kids the way you do, but they are human beings and they have had a loss and they love little peanuts. They love their grandson. And you can watch their pain. And so I guess I had to tell myself early on, this is probably what I'm here for. When I got to homicide and I realized that there was such a need for closure to these family members, and I knew I was able to bring it to them, I knew that's where I was supposed to be. Then I learned, all right, so how do you deal with it yourself? How do you come to terms with this? And part of it was, there's a little saying, don't fake the funk. Live it with them. It's okay that you're upset with them. You can go to pretrial hearings and you can get ready for trial and cry together. And you can go to their house on Christmas Eve and bring cookies, which I do. You can live and be their friend and go through the process with them. And it kind of helps you with the closure as well. It makes you feel like, all right, so I couldn't give them their son back, but I can give them their day in a hearing where they get to tell the judge how much that that person has taken from them. So this whole process evolved, and this is what I've turned into. They're just the most special people in my life. You know, Tina Green lost her mom to a murder. David Perkins lost his mom to a violent crime, a murder. And these are people that on Christmas Eve, where I used to have my own family celebration, I still have a family celebration. It's just with extended family. From the very time their mother was murdered in 2013, I go to their home on Christmas Eve where the mom was murdered and we have a celebration and their family comes and my family comes and we celebrate. Probably two months ago, I had dinner with another family that lost their mom, uh, the children, the, the, the nieces, the nephews, the siblings. I mean, there was probably 15 of us at Maggiano's at the town center and we had dinner just to commemorate, you know, Kim's memory. I could go on and on. My phone, not once a week, doesn't have some sort of message or some sort of, you know, hey, how are you doing? These people have not, they're not just people in my cases. These are my family members now. They're a different type of family member, but they are my family. And the way that it makes me feel better is that they do have that resource. They do. And during this process, the other thing that you have to give them is this process. A murder here in, in Duval County, once you arrest somebody, you may be sitting two to five years. Two years on the good end before you get to a trial. The one I was speaking of earlier, Marilyn Alou, was murdered in 2013. We just sentenced the suspect, Marvin Jones, in 2019. That's a six-year window. You're there for them. And sometimes, Karen, sometimes these people call and cut you out. You just got to know they're mad at the process. They're mad at the fact that it's their child's birthday. And I can always tell when a mom calls me up and she's mad as hell and just hollering and fussing. If I look at my file and go, well, that was Peanut's birthday. I get it. She's at the funeral home. She's at the cemetery and she's mad. Things bring up the date that he was killed. There are things that these people go through that it's the first time they've gone through it. Praise God, it's the only time. But I go through it 
once a week with everybody. All these murders that you work, you go through it. So I can't live in their shoes. I'm not walking in their footsteps, but I'm sure standing beside them, holding their hand and telling them what's coming next. Don't duck around the corner because this is what's going to happen. A lot of these guys think that you put somebody in jail and poof, it's done. It is not. You are a third of the way there. The other third is the prosecution and what comes between now and then, additional evidence, continuing to work these cases, listening to jail calls, cultivating additional witnesses. And then the, the last third of that is handling that family, managing that family, keeping them up to date. You should never have your sergeant ask you why someone's calling and they haven't heard from you in a year. I had a, a list and I kept it together and it's a calendar. And I had two things on the calendar, the decedent's birthday and the date of death. And every single time there was one of them, I would send a, a message or a text message or I would send something to that mom so that they knew somebody cared. Because along the way, 90% of the time you hear them say, nobody cares about my son. So I wanted them to know I care about your son. So that was an, another process that I dealt with. I have pictures on my cabinet right now in my new office. And in my old office, I kept all of my babies. When I got Alexandria Williams, uh, not a known fact to you, but I had four baby cases in a row, all under the age of two. Then a few years later, I got Lonzy Barton. I kept all of the baby pictures. I kept them on my wall. When I moved and I retired, I felt like I, when I got my new job, I just couldn't, I had to close that door a second so that Every time I saw a baby case in the news or whatever, I wasn't traumatized by it. So I took down the babies and I put them in a special place. And I have four adults that their families just mean so much to me. And their pictures are on my wall. And their pictures are on my wall so that when I have moments that I think, gosh, I really didn't want to get up this morning and I you know, did too much last night and I sure don't want to get up and I'm probably going to take a half day today, I would look at those pictures and ask, if I took a half day in the middle of their case, would I have made a difference? Those are the people now that tell me, hey, you're doing the right thing. Keep, keep doing the right thing. Anytime I question myself, I look over at the wall and I see Kim. I see Marilyn. I see Isabella. I see these people in my mind and think they would want me to do the same thing for the, the new job that I have that I had for them. In addition to making the victim's families now part of your family and everything else that you do, there's something else that you've become involved in that helps you cope with this emotional fallout. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, a long time ago, about 10 years ago, I started with a buddy of mine that's a DEA supervisor right now, a group called City Streets of Student Athletes. And so my thing was to, between doing athletics myself, it was to invest in people. And I say that meaning this group of kids that we put together, we started off with eight or 10 kids at the park on a Sunday. And this past Sunday, we had our last camp for the year, and we had 150-plus kids. We're trying to be mentors to these kids where they live in a drug-free environment, and that it's okay for them to say to their buddy who's trying to pass them some, some molly or marijuana or whatever, we, we are trying to provide them a way of life so that they go to college and they come out and be productive citizens. The range is from 8 to 18. We've gotten, like, some of our coaching coaches now, our volunteer coaches, are the kids that have been from the program. We've watched these kids evolve into adults, and the system works for them, and ultimately I like to invest in, in people, meaning mostly kids. Well, sister, I, I can't thank you enough for all of um, your time, your frankness, your being so candid. I think the listeners are really going to take a lot away from this, and I want them to understand that there are humans behind these cases. The media has just sensationalized true crime so much. I'm trying to bring the human aspect behind it with this podcast. And yeah, you <laughs> you did that in spades. So thanks. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about City Streets to Student Athletes, you can go to CS2, that's the number two, SA.com. That's CS2SA.com. It's a collective group of concerned community leaders who came together and cultivated a methodology to help student-athletes become productive members of society and turn away from drugs and other illegal activity. That's cs2sa.com, and maybe you can help out too. 
This is the new real. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Underscore music by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. All rights reserved by Angel Heart Productions. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.